today. But we want to begin a series in uh, thinking about what it means to actually be the church in a world of disappointment. And not just a world of disappointment about out there, but in here. From the very beginning, we've said that we want to be a church that can be honest. That we don't have to, to pretend like we have to fake or make ourselves look better than we are to, to kind of like defend God. No, God can defend himself. We want to be honest about realities, disillusionments, disappointments. And so we're going to have this series about disillusionment with life in the church and how we can continue to be faithful to God's calling. And so believe that this is important for us at the beginning of each year, those who are covenant members of our church, or we have this sort of season, this sort of month of, of covenant renewal. We're going to touch on that a little bit in the service and why we believe that's biblical and not just some sort of legalistic man-made tradition. We also, early in the year, will have a class where we will invite any who want to consider what it looks like to be a covenant member here. But regardless of covenant membership, what we want to see is that God, the church is God's idea. It's not man's. And so we're going to jump into that in the mess of all that that means. And there's really no better place to look than the book of 1 Corinthians. Because this, these letters to the Corinthians reveal a church that has a lot of issues, uh, for lack of a better term. And if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you, we're not going to go through these whole books verse by verse in these next five to six weeks. But if you've not read the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, I'd encourage you to go and read those in whole so that you can be good Bereans as we read through these. And if you don't know what that means, I'll tell you later. We want to be a church where people can be real and not in the cliche use of that. We want to be a church where people who have real mental health, emotional health, physical health issues, where people who go through different seasons in their life, you know, whether that's seasons of zeal or that seasons of where you're hitting a wall of doubt and discouragement and depression, where people who have legitimate psychological disorders, like people who have legitimate maybe social anxiety disorders can still say, I can still get a vision for what it looks like for me to be a part of God's church. And for that, there needs to be a lot of grace. And so that's where we'll drill in today. So 1 Corinthians, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Go read Acts chapter 18 to know more about who he is and how this church was planted. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. ...who will sustain you to the end... ...guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful... ...by whom you were called... ...into the fellowship of His Son... ...Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have called us by Your grace... ...into the fellowship of Your Son. And we pray, God, that You would help us today... ...right now to be present... We know you are here, God, and we thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are here, God, not because of our good works, not because of the songs that we've sung or the prayers that we've prayed, but because of, of your willingness and the covering that you've given us in Jesus and the spirit that you've placed to indwell within us that is yours. And we just ask, God, you would help us to be here, to listen to you, we pray that what is said that is true would come in and give us freedom. We pray, Holy Spirit, for conviction and for comfort. For a calling into a deeper experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom you want to display here on earth as it is in heaven. So we ask all this in our Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 
When I was growing up, for whatever feeling, I had a great childhood, so this isn't a knock on my childhood. We never went to Disney World. And honestly, I, was, I never really cared about going to Disney World. It was, it was something that didn't seem that great to me, but as I got older, I got to go to Disney World. My wife's family went to Disney World, and I remember going, all this excitement, all the hype that's kind of around it, and honestly, apologize to all the kids here already, I meant to say that, it's like it, it just didn't feel like it lived up to what I thought it was supposed to be. I don't enjoy waiting in an hour in a line to ri- be on a ride for five minutes. Now, I know some of you do, so that, that's great. That's not a right or wrong, but Jim Gaffigan, a comedian that I do not endorse, uh, has a funny bit about this, and, he, if, and, and one of the things he says is you wait in an hour of a line for Dumbo, and he says if you expect a mirror is going to be at the end of it, you're the Dumbo. You waited in line and spent all this money. Another one, he says, I wonder how they come up with rides. Let's drive a bumper car into a dark room with a picture of Winnie the Pooh at the end of it. People will wait in line for an hour for that, won't they? Or another one, let's just hollow out a log and shove them over a waterfall. We've got their money already, so why not? Now, some love this, but for many others, these sort of epic amusement park things are a real expensive disappointment. I mean, you've got to have a bigger purpose going on and a bigger perspective that is about other people than yourself to enjoy this. Because some it is a disillusionment. If you were to look up what this word disillusionment means, it means a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as you believed it would be. I want to say that again because it's going to be foundational for these next weeks. Disillusionment, a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. And if we are honest with ourselves, this disillusionment is not immune from coming into our discipleship. Coming into the life of being a follower of Jesus. And what we want to underline this morning, and we're going to underline it in different ways in the coming weeks, it is especially not immune from how we experience life as a local church. All of us sometimes, many of us a lot of the times, and maybe no doubt some of you this very morning, are disappointed resulting in the discovery that life in the church is not as good as you think it should be, or as you thought it would be. And it can feel much like going to an amusement park for some of us, not just a disappointment, but a very expensive and costly disappointment. You put a lot of money into it. You put a lot of time into it. It can be a bigger disappointment for those who invest the most into it. You put your heart into it. And for some people... and. What it costs is not merely how you feel about a fellowship, but how you feel about your faith in general. Right or wrong, the experiences people have with the people of God so often lead to people reassessing all that they even believe about God. Matthew's Table Church is no exception. We will not proudly pretend to be. What if a church that says they are for the broken, burnout, and bored ends up just leaving you sometimes feeling more broken, burnout, and bored? What if everything feels like sometimes it's fake and phony, inconsistent, incompetent, and more? Again, we have to talk about these things because many are leaving the church, and speaking of the church in general right now, not our church, because of disillusionment of their experience in the church. Some to what I would say literal leaving. So that is atheism, some form of deconstructionism, where it's like, whatever that is, I don't want to be a part of it, so I'm just going to reinvent this myself. But some, and I would say many more, are leaving the church not literally, but internally. Like, I'm going to stick around because I don't want to have all those hard conversations with my friends and family about why I'm not. So I can still sit in a seat. I can still do a little service. But man, deep down, this is all just a waste of time. What is the point? 
not what I thought it would be. Some of you may be there. I'm here just to throw a grenade in the middle of all this even more. And what about our country right now? Do you watch the news and maybe feel a little disappointed? A little disillusioned? We should care. But aren't we glad that we've been told we're a part of an unshakable kingdom? But here's the question as we go into our text today. How has God decided to manifest his unshakable kingdom on earth? Through the local church. So if that gets shaken, then where do we stand? Our first recollection has to be that this whole church thing is God's thing. It's not mere tradition. It's not a man-made institution. And we're not just talking about the universal church either. When the New Testament speaks of the church over some 113 times, 90 more of those times aren't talking about just Christians in general who've been united together, but local assemblies who've decided to manifest that universal identity in local commitment. That the church is Jesus' body, His bride. His organism, but also His organization. It has been rightly said that it's not so much that God's church has a mission, but God's mission has a church. When God said, how am I going to fill the whole earth with my glory? How when everything falls apart, am I going to display my character in this world? It's not through individual people running around loving Him. It's through the formation of a people, a family an assembly, a church. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians helps us get to the tension of this. Showing us that if we are to endure as God's people on God's mission, then our disillusionment with the local church must be met with God's devotion to the local church. I want to say that again. If we are to endure as God's people on God's mission, our disillusionment with the local church must be met with not with your devotion to the local church, not with your leader's devotion to the local church, with God's devotion. So how do we do that? The first thing is we must meet God in the reality that disillusionment with the people of God, disillusionment with the church is to be expected. Verses 1 and 2, Paul, he's called by the will of God, but jump down to verse 2, we're going to come back to verse 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, Paul, led of the Holy Spirit, leads the people there in the planning of a local church. Sothenes, who is mentioned, if you go and read, he was a leader of the local synagogue. This is a major sort of conversion. Paul, not only this, this, this former Pharisee, he comes into town, he shares the gospel. Sosthenes, who's the leader of the synagogue there, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Imagine the excitement. Imagine the joy. If you can, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just real briefly in verse 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then hear this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you feel the excitement that must have been around this church plant? The religious are coming to know Jesus. The rebellious are coming to know Jesus. Lives are being changed. And in the midst, if you go read Acts 19, of great adversity. There's suffering that's happening, and yet the church is being born and it's coming alive. Just imagine the visions, the dreams... Paul thinking, what is God going to do in this city through this church? And now if you would, and I can't read the verses, but you can flip with me so you can glance. Here are the realities that Paul's facing as he writes this letter. 
As the chapter goes on in chapter 1, this church has become a church of great division. Factions has formed saying, I'm a Paul. No, I like Apollos better as a teacher. No, I think Peter's better as a teacher. No, I, and then you have the super spiritual ones. If you've not read it this way, this is what it's saying. you got the super spiritual people in the church who are like, I'm of Jesus. They're fighting. Who's the best teacher? Whose side are we on? Who do we want to lead us? Who do we want to listen to? Totally devaluing and disrespecting Paul in so many ways. In chapters 2 and 3, if you read these chapters, you see how the church has begun saturated with worldly wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. In chapter 4, we see that this church, instead of following Paul's pattern of humility, has begun to exalt themselves over Paul. In chapter 5, if it's not got bad enough, you see that the church is tolerating sin within its midst. And they actually think that's a good thing. There is, there is an incest going on in the church. Not the, I, you may not call it incest, but a man has his likely his mother-in-law or in a sexual relationship and nobody seems to care. Chapter 6, they're suing each other. So the church that's supposed to be the witness of God's unity in the world has become the master of the lawsuit. This is... They're actually publicly going to sue one another over disputes going on within the church. Chapter 7. Sexuality, singleness, marriage, divorce. A total debacle in the life of this church. Chapter 8. The ones who think they know something are proud and puffed up and condemning. Chapter 9, again, doubting and devaluing Paul. Chapter 10, they're flirting with idolatry and there's this judgmentalism, this I'm better than you mentality going around how it's dealt with. Chapter 11, again, not, on, not only is there things going on wrong in the church, but if you read chapter 11, these are these famous texts on how we're to address the Lord's Supper. And it's not because Paul's saying, hey, here, I think y'all need some tips. It's because these guys are making the poor be last in line and then they're getting drunk at the Lord's table. Paul says this in chapter 11, verse 17. It's so bad. When you come together, it's actually not for the better, but for the worse. That's chapter 11, verse 17. It's worse when y'all get together and do the Lord's Supper. It'd be better to not do it. Chapters 12 through 14, these famous chapters on the use of the spiritual gifts are because the church of Corinth is abusing and misusing the spiritual gifts. They're not doing it out of love for others. They're doing it out of love and promotion for self. And to top it all off, we get to chapter 15, and there are some who are doubting the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Himself. That's a punch in the gut. <laughs> I had a friend who went into the army... So look forward to serving, so look forward to all the stuff, seeing the movies and whatever. And this, this is his phrase, he always says, they take the fun out of everything. I know some of you served, and I don't mean that in disrespect at all, but this was just his experience. He wanted to serve, was glad to serve. But he's like, you think shooting a gun's going to be fun? <laughs> Wait till you spend a thousand more times cleaning your gun than shooting a gun. You think doing all of this is going to be great? He just, he just said, my experience was they took the fun out of everything. But the reality is, what are they being prepared for? War. Not playing war out in the backyard, but going to war, which is not fun. That may be how you feel about church sometimes. They take all the fun out of following Jesus. I've said dumb stuff like this. I would love the ministry if it wasn't for the people. You, if you're honest, might say, I would love following Jesus and I would love the church if it wasn't for the people. But the Bible teaches us the church is the people. It's not programs. 
It's not platforms. It's not personalities. It's not your vision. It's not your dream. It's not what you want to do. It's who we are. Missional community, wow. That sounds great, but they take the fun out of it. They don't do it right. So I'm not going to do it. Fight club, yeah, that'd be a good idea, but it's supposed to be this way, and my experience is it's not been that way. Have you ever tried, if you have children doing a family devotion, your children, I love my children, no offense, they would agree, is it's like, ooh, tonight we're going to dive into this chapter in the Bible, I'm going to teach my kids this doctrine, I would have loved if my dad or somebody would have sat down and did this with me. Disillusionment, I love you guys, they're great. I would have been worse than they were. Did we forget that we are at war? What did we expect? Have we ever cracked this open? You've never read through the Old Testament? Why don't you go let that be your expectation for what it's going to be like to be a part of the people of God? Not some shiny social media pastor giving a vision... We have got to acknowledge our disappointment and disillusionment, but we've got to do it into an uncynical expectation of reality. What I mean by that is you have got to have a real expectation of what it's going to happen, what it's like to be really a part of the people and not be cynical about it. Cynical means I'm always expecting the worst. I've always got a bad filter to read everything through. Some of you have sacrificed much to be a part of this church. Many of you have left other churches you've loved dearly. Many of you have, some of you, several of you have moved here. People like me, our family have sold homes, moved, sacrificed. And yet the hard times come. If you're new to our church and you think you're stepping into some type of utopia, then just hang around for about five minutes. <laughs> in real relationship. This should be our expectation. Don't come here thinking you won't be hurt by another leader. You will be. Don't come here thinking there won't be some people who are baptized and who shall power, powerful stories of God's converting power and then leave and never return your call. I remember at some point in my ignorance thinking, man, I can't, I'd love, want to be a part of a church where people don't give each other the cold shoulders and are passive aggressive. You know, if we just plant a church that's, that's real and honest, it won't do that. But guess what? Whatever person in any other church that you've experienced that treated you that way, Maybe it was an organ player, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a friend. Well, that person's probably going to show up here too in another form. And you thought, oh, now that I'm actually learning the gospel and growing in it and not in a culture of legalism, I'm going to be a person full of grace and all of a sudden you're going to realize, wow, I can still get mean. <laughs> Heady, pouty. Consumerism creeps into a church even that seeks to decry all that it's about. Where when people don't get what they want, they take their ball and go home. Just because we share a gospel we believe is good news, it doesn't mean that the God of this world does not continue to blind the eyes of unbelievers. You share the gospel again and again. You sacrifice to see people, whether in, in addiction, in homelessness, or real difficult situations, or just in the plague of doubt. And you share the gospel, but God's grace and power is no less needed when you share the gospel rightly. There are people who become self-proclaimed protectors of truth and self-proclaimed prophets. There are people who get on social media and mock people, not just share the truth, but mock people who believe differently than them, whether that be theologically or politically. 
and say it's because somebody's got to stand for the truth. Well, I just want it. Mocking somebody's not standing for the truth. Within the church, there are assumptions and accusations. There are people who gossip about leaders without going to them directly. Who do the whole pray for me wisdom thing in a hundred different angles. There are people who will stand or would stand around the Lord's table with someone they wouldn't have over to their own home. And sometimes what you can feel like in the life of the church is like, man, I stepped into this thing through the door of Acts chapter 2. You know what I'm talking about? The Spirit falls. We're, we're, we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. We're loving one another. We're sharing all our stuff. So you like step into the church through the door of Acts 2, and then all of a sudden you turn around and you're in Corinthian. You're in Corinth. So what are you going to do? I stepped in Acts 2 and now I'm in Corinth. If you read the rest of Acts, it doesn't keep going like Acts 2. We've got to take this seriously because disillusionment can form deep cynicism and deep doubt. And I've seen it many times and some of you have too. Again, it doesn't just lead to saying I don't like the church. And many times it leads people to a total reformation of all that they believe about truth. This is not light stuff. But the thing we need to see is that God wants to meet you there. If there's anybody in the history of the world who could be more disappointed with the people of God, it's God. Adam and Eve. Kind of not the goal. Cain and Abel. Love each other, brothers. Well, maybe I'll kill him. Over a worship issue. Not just any issue. He killed him over a worship issue. Abraham, Jacob, Israel in the wilderness. Again, just go read it. They're just, God provides for them and they just complain and grumble and grumble and grumble. Why don't you just leave us in Egypt to die? If it was going to be this hot, they sound like a, 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 a little kid, right? Like we do. I why don't you just leave me there? Israel wanted a king. David, even the good king's great sins. Israel in exile. Jesus comes and we don't see, what do we see him doing? He's just weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. God's people, why won't you listen? His disciples don't get it. They scatter. One, to, one betrays him to death. Another of his closest denies him at the point of death. He's crucified at the hands of his own people. God is with you. God's not here first off to shame you, to condemn you, to intimidate you in your state of disillusionment because you've been disappointed. God knows. God's meeting you there. But He wants to meet you there so that your expectation is transformed into one that meets reality so that you can endure. But we need more to meet Him in that expectation. We need to meet God in the grace that makes disillusionment with the church endurable. That's what all these verses are about. It's amazing. Paul, that whole list, read First and Second Corinthians. The whole second letter of the Corinthians is basically Paul just trying to say, come on guys, treat me with some respect. But Paul doesn't quit in body or in spirit. Paul doesn't run them down. He doesn't redefine church because, whoa, wait, if this is how it is, we're going to have to come up with some new doctrines. Please don't... Anyway, the truth doesn't change because of the way people behave around it. Paul knows that. And Paul also, though, doesn't get rigid. And that's what we see right here. How does Paul keep on? Because grace is his lens. This is no cheap grace. This is the same God who, when he reveals who he is, this is how he decides in Exodus 34. I am slow to anger, compassionate, and abounding in steadfast love. That's not just a character trait of God. That's a hermeneutical principle. 
we don't read our Bibles set through the lens of the character of God. So this is how this makes sense, what Paul writes here. How is Paul not some kind of hypocrite phony? He's going to spend the rest of the chapters of this book laying out how they need to change. But what does he say first? Well, the first thing he starts with is he just does what he always does, and he lays this greeting of grace on the table that begins with his own legacy of grace. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you know Paul's story, that is huge. This man was a persecutor of the church. They, when they stoned Stephen, that, that mighty man of God, it was Paul, at Paul's feet they laid their clothes as he stood on in approval. It was Paul who got permission and authority to go and search out Christians and kill them. It was Paul who says in Romans chapter 7, and we can debate how you want to interpret that, but in some way I believe it's speaking to a life of a Christian. Or if not, go to Galatians 5.17 that speaks of the war. Or even Paul's an apostle saying, you know, I don't do what I want to do, I want to do what I don't want to do. Paul says to himself in the mirror, I am the chief of sinners. And let's say it a different way. I am the chief of disappointments. I am the chief disillusioner. That's what starts this letter. That's what leads to this grace. Me, I am the chief disillusioner. I am the one who's disappointed. And God met me with grace. He endures because grace is his legacy. He knows what Jesus said. We will never meet any person or problem in the local church that requires more grace than God's already given you. You will never meet one person or problem in the church that requires you to give more forgiveness to somebody else than God has given you. Matthew 18, you want to go read the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in Corinth, this stands. Now keep in mind all that I've read about what's going on in this church. And now look at this. this is, he says this is God's church. He says you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does sanctified mean? This isn't here talking about progressive sanctifications, which is we change gradually over time. This is positional sanctification. He is looking at this church that from all practical appearances in the rest of this letter is a total... I can't say... Anyway, oh, I didn't say that. A total mess. And he's saying, you are positionally holy. You got a theology that can handle that? You are positionally holy. That's the church. Certainly there are people in the church that are not. He will say, examine yourselves. But when he looks at this church as the church, he says, you are positionally holy. Now, this isn't two or three people gathered in a coffee shop as long as they're happy. This is the instituted local church of God who has been given, as Matthew 18 says and Matthew 16 says, the keys of the kingdom to represent Christ on earth. It's the people of God, saved by the power of God, sent with the purposes of God, and indwelt with the presence of God. It's the people who gather under the preaching of the word, 1 Timothy 2 and 4, and 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. It's the people who gather together covenant to come around the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11. It's the people who have been gifted not to just go out in the world and serve, but to be the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's the people of God who have elders, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Hebrews 13, 17, elders who lead and love in a church that says, these are our elders, and elders who can say, these are the sheep. See, many people don't have a theology for what it means to be a local church where we're committed to one another, but if you read through the New Testament, it makes no sense otherwise. And it is this church, these local bodies of the Bride of Christ displayed and manifested through their commitment to come together around the Word and around the table and the use of their gifts and organized according to God's plan. 
when Paul celebrates. If anything tests our belief that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, it is that statement right there to that church. To you, Corinth, you are sanctified in Christ. There is no way they could be considered holy based on their performance. No way. The only way they could be considered holy is because the performance of Christ must be supreme. And isn't that good news for us? They're called to be saints. Again, holy ones, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're a local church who's been placed within this universal church of people who have responded to faith and the promises of God fulfilled in Christ of all times, places, and cultures. They're a part of a bigger story. Again, it's the beginning of the year. It's not silly or cliche to read through your Bible every year. If you do that this year, you're going to meet so much grace. And that's what we as a local church have to remember. We're a part of a story that this thing only is held together by God's grace. Not Israel's faithfulness, not Israel's king's faithfulness, not the apostles' faithfulness, God's faithfulness. As our text today will end. So verse 3, he can say, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his first word. His first word is one of grace. And then verses 4 through 7, we see he, this grace breeds this gratitude. I give thanks to my God always for you. Always. Why? For, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And then he just celebrates them. He celebrates evidences of grace in the very areas later he will have to correct them because of their abuse. But the first thing he says is not correction and condemnation and criticism, but the evidence of grace. That's how you endure. An experience and an understanding of grace breeds a life and a flinch of gratitude. These are God's people. You are God's people. We are God's people. Why are we God's people? Not because of works, but because of grace. So are you going to make someone else earn what God didn't? Are you going to choose to not love God those chose to love? Are you going to say, God... I think you're a reckless enabler. If you're honest, some of you don't like the parable of the prodigal son. You want to sit back and think, I bet the father had another conversation with him later. Running out of time, but I've counseled a lot of people who've been married and their marriages are at the end and the disillusionment comes in and what happens in that disillusionment is it becomes a filter for everything. Like nothing was good. Nothing's really been good. Yeah, there were little moments, but those moments were the exception now. When those disillusionment and disappointment glasses get on, you, you, it's like the old joke of the guy who went to the psychologist and said, I think I'm dead. And the psychologist said, well, do you believe dead men bleed? And he said, no, dead men don't bleed. And so the psychologist reached out and cut him and he started to bleed. And you know what the guy's response is? Well, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. Because whether it's a conspiracy theory or disillusionment, no, no evidence you present will ever be enough because it, it fits. Because the filter's more powerful. So if your filter is not grace, then there ain't nothing anybody can do or say that will ever be enough. And when you find yourself in Corinth, when you walked in the door of Acts 2, if grace is not your lens, then cynicism will be your fate. But God can use grace to grow us. I mean, use disillusionment to grow us if we will step into grace. 
Imagine if every time you faced disillusionment and disappointment in the church, you walked with Paul to that mirror. And in humility you said, how am I the disappointment and the disillusionment before God and others? Not to condemn yourself, but to receive God's grace. And then to hear him say to you, yeah, that's true. Those sins are real. But guess what? I still love you. I'm not going anywhere. You see, so many of us get so hard and so critical and so judgmental because we've not yet received that grace ourselves. We can walk through the door of disillusionment and disappointment to a deeper experience of grace in our own life. We're humble. We can let disillusionment grow our identity as the church. We talk a lot about what it means to be a gospel-centered church and not using that in a cliche word. And the biggest way is it's, we believe that identity precedes activity, that the indicative precedes the imperative, that who we are comes before what we do. That's all Paul's doing right here. He's like, I got a lot to talk about about what you do wrong. But I don't see you through the lens of what you do. I see you through the lens of who you are. This is who God says you are. When you're disillusioned or disappointed by the church, by other people in the church, by yourself in the church, the first thing you need to do is with Paul is you need to recite who the gospel says that person is. If I was upset with Cody, I'm not. Val, whoever. My first thing needs to be is to sit down and say, God chose this brother or this sister, say it's Ashley, by grace. They're a child of God. They're, they're graced with the gifts. They've been, they've been given all of these things by God. And this is, I know they did this thing that may have been real and may have been hurtful. But this is who God says they are through Christ. How can I deny that without me now becoming the person who stands in the way of God? It's the local church as a whole we have to ask this. Is it God's or not? This may just be a theological study you need to do. Do I believe that? Do I really believe it? Because I want to tell you whether you need to know that now, at some point in your life you're going to need to know it. I'm no exception. You're going to need to have a conviction that this is God's idea and not some mere man-made tradition. It is going to be tested. But will you believe that if God chooses it, so will I? By grace, we can let God use our disillusionment to grow our gratitude. One person said this, what is the first thing you think of when you think of your church? And we'll say this in our church, your church, your missional community, your fight club. Is the first thing that comes to your mind areas of growth or evidences of grace? pattern here is grace. We can let our disillusionment also by God lead us into a deeper discipleship of what it means to be the people of God in community, living life on life, life in community, and life on mission. I've often heard people say, you know what, after being in the church a little while, I just really enjoy being around my unbelieving friends or these disciples who I just randomly see at work or other places. Well, here, here's the question I think God would have for you. Like, who are you giving more grace to? Where's your unity at? Is your unity in other people's performance? Is your unity in Christ? Later in this chapter, Paul will say this through the Spirit, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. This is how God decided to make up His church. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's design for the church. We're a mess, we come together, and it's like, God, you're the only hope. We're here because of you. We've expected this, but now we're enduring it because of you and your grace. The broken, burnout, and the bored gathered into a church aren't all of a sudden not broken, burnout, and bored. If you've not discovered that, like, it's one thing to come together, now we've got to live together. But there's hope. Grace. This is how our text ends in these last couple verses. Verses 8 and 9. God will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. Jonathan, click me to verse 9, please, sir. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way we endure, even in clinging to grace, is we have to meet God's faithfulness as the fuel not anybody else's. If your commitment to the people of God is conditioned upon the faithfulness of other people, then it, it's time to go home or find a church. We don't, we don't want you. Well, I don't even say that. That sounds right. Find somewhere where they're just going to tolerate you sitting on a pew and wasting your life and maybe proving shipwreck of your faith. Because we're all going to let each other down. Because guess what? That's what happens when you have a real relationship. The only way we can maintain this thing, we've got two paths. It's either God's faithfulness is going to be what holds us together through Christ, or we're just going to have to all agree to fake and not really know each other. And if you think when you let really people really know you, if how they respond to you, if you're like, okay, I'm only going to be as faithful as how great their response is, then just, just go ahead and head to the house. Because we're all a bunch of complex people here. And we're not a bunch of pros, right? A bunch of weak people trying to love each other. And we're going to do our best. But Jesus is going to have to be the hero. God's faithfulness has to be the glue. This is the only way Paul has hope. It's because everything that he sees through this church is going to be addressed through the lens of the gospel. It's because the church here we notice is what? I love this definition of the church. The fellowship of his son. The one who said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The one who is able to present us guiltless? The Corinthians are going to be presented guiltless with all that mess that's going on. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17 when he prayed that we might be one, he and the Father only. This is why our love and devotion for the church will only be as endurable and as strong as we see God's is. To the local church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28, this is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, says to those local leaders of that local church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The local church is not some sort of institutional experiment. It has been obtained by the blood of Christ. Nobody in the history of the world has been hurt worse by the people of God and by the church than Jesus. Nobody, hear that again, has ever been hurt worse by the church than Jesus, and nobody has ever loved the church more than Jesus. If that isn't getting down to the depths of your soul, it's not going to work. 
This is not easy. I know people who have been hurt so deeply by the local church. I know people who have had who have suffered sexual abuse at the hands of church leaders. I know of people who have had friends who have committed suicide because of the abuse they've experienced in the local church. My own experience in trying to be as discreet as I can in the local church has not always been pretty. My story involves finding out that leaders and many people who I thought were faithful disciples were fake in their public workplaces. Had a pastor who stole money and then asked for forgiveness. And when the church didn't let things just go on as normal, he just took a hundred or so of those people and went and started a new church where he could rule in an authoritarian and unaccountable fashion. I've been on the other side of doors, literally in churches, offices, and heard other staff members speak negatively and accusatorily of me. In our experience, we've moved across the country to, to live this out, to only really be disillusioned that people didn't live it how we thought. Let's share some of that. I'm not trying to make you feel sorry for me. I'm just trying to say, hey, I'm here with you. And I'm going to kind of say something now in the spirit of the Apostle Paul, if you read these letters. I got another job that pays me well. I don't need to be standing here to provide for my family. I'm not saying all this to make you guys feel guilty so you hang around and I get a paycheck or so I don't feel bad about myself because this doesn't work out. I'm telling you from the fiber of my being, with everything that I believe that this word says, that the church is God's idea. That the local church is His instrument for bringing about a display of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that He wants us to give our lives, not to mere men, not to mere tradition, or to mere women, or to mere, but to give our lives to Him and His way. And in a world that says con- commitment's not important, and in a world of consumerism, this is not easy. But God is faithful. God is faithful. And God has sent us. And I think, lastly, we can love people more missionally if we will let this disillusionment shape our discipleship. If you do justice with your own disillusion and disappointment, it it won't make you more proud and critical. It'll make you more sympathetic to people who aren't here. Like, you're not going to sit back if you're getting what I'm saying about grace, and you're not going to sit back and say, oh, I have a better theology of the local church than them or they would be here. No, you're going to sit back and say, I can totally understand why they're at the house right now. I can totally get it. You're not going to go bring some legalism on them. You're just going to bring more love to them. And you're just going to be more more committed to showing up in your family meal or your virtual family time, showing up in your fight club, not because the leaders are meeting your expectations. (laughs) That ain't going to happen. But because you love what God loves. And you want to show this world of division... If you're not on social media, then maybe you don't know. This world of division. There's actually these people who keep showing up for each other and loving each other. And then they're going to want to know why. And we're going to say, it's not because we're great. This person right here, I think, you don't say this actually out loud, but you think, this person right here annoys me, never meets my expectations. I don't think they do this right. This leader, I got 10 other ways they could do this better. But I'm not here because of them. This isn't the fellowship of them. It's the fellowship of Jesus. That's why we're here on Sundays. That's why we're at family meals. That's why we're at Fight Club. It ain't about nobody else's faithfulness. Jesus is faithful. And it's Jesus' fellowship. Now that'll get the world's attention. And Jesus won't just be some other mascot for a religion. He'll be someone who brings hope. 
So we've got to ask ourselves, are we going to be faithful to God's church? Are we going to be that armchair coach critic? You don't do it right. If, if, if you're here this morning and you, God wants you to be a part of a church where you can go all in. If this ain't it, find somewhere else. I don't say that to be mean. I say that because I love you. If you're here and you're hurting and you need time, there's time, there's space. There's people here who love you and will meet with you to talk about those wounds and those idols and those lies. But God wants you to experience life together as His body. I want to close by reading a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who that is, go look it up. He says, By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief time in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. Only that fellowship which faces disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. He says, the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Now, we're all trying to keep that from happening. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but better for both. Why? He says, a community that cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Now listen to this line. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Say that again. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. No matter how honest or earnest or sacrificial. Now he says this to church planners like me. God hates visionary dreaming. This is all overstatement. Y'all know great leaders overstate things. But anyway, but it's still some good stuff here. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets his law, and judges the brethren and God accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, and it's his dream that binds everybody together. When things don't go his way, then, he calls it a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees his community going to smash. So he becomes, let's listen to the Spirit here if this is any of us, so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally, the despairing accuser of himself. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ. Long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what He has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by His call, His forgiveness, and His promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what He does give us daily. If we are to endure as God's people through our disillusionment with the local church, will only happen if we are met constantly with the grace of God and His devotion to the local. Father, we thank You for Your Word. May we examine it by Your Word. May You refine us, Lord, in our commitment 
May it not be filled with legalism, but with life. May we display to a watching world of disappointment, confusion, and division that there is one who can give us a unity that is bigger than our preferences and our personality and even our own meeting of expectations. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.